The uh, next two visions are really almost self-evident, and we'll be able to look at them r rather rapidly, and then we'll spend the remainder of, I guess we have to, huh? <laughs> and then we'll spend uh, the majority of our time in chapter 6, um, but we'll look at the two visions of chapter 5. There are two visions in this short chapter, uh, vision number 1, verses 1 through 4, Vision, that's vision number six, of course, in our schedule. And vision number seven, verses five through eleven. And then the eighth vision is in chapter six. And that will be our concluding uh, study. Okay, so let's look at chapter five. Appreciate now that you've come together a little more, the less spread out. Uh, our ranks have thinned down just a bit, but uh, that's all right. Then uh, we can divide up the remaining blessings among fewer people. <laughs> you know, I would get a bigger piece of the pie now. Let's look at the Lord's Word again as it is given us in Zechariah chapter 5. The first vision is that of the flying scroll. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, the other everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Okay, briefly now. Uh, the theme of this vision, vision number six, is that evil must be punished that there must be the administration of justice in the land. Um, justice was administered uh, by the judges and the kings. In my understanding of the scripture, um, after Moses, you have judges appointed in the period of, of the judges. That's why it's called the period of the judges. And then that merges into the king kingship. Now you see that I think a judge is also an elder. <laughs> and a king, the kings of David, and they continue until the exile, and Zerubbabel is the last active person who functions in a kingly fashion. And he's not even called king, he's called a governor. After that, the, the judges sort of administer justice in the land. You remember Solomon had to uh, decide between two women, both of whom claimed one baby, and so he said, well, cut it in half, and each take half, you know? And... Uh, and that, of course, convinced him that the mother who said, oh, no, if you're going to cut that child in half, let her have it. And Solomon said, oh, it must be your baby then, so you may have it. Well, he was administering justice as the supreme judge in the land. Well, after, uh, after uh, the exile, you have judges appointed again because uh, there, there was no nation of Israel. They were always subservient to some foreign power, and so they couldn't have a prominent king. That would be a threat to the 
to the nations that had conquered them, uh, the Persians we've talked about most, but after them, uh, the Greeks, the Hellenists, and then the Romans. So, but judges still administer justice in the land. Um, so this vision is a reminder that justice must be administered. Well, how is it administered? Well, on the basis of the law. And the law was the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments uh, elaboration that you have in the rest of the books of Exodus, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So this scroll represents God's law. And uh, it's a flying scroll, and it's, uh, and it's a scroll of two tables. You know, the law always had two tables of the law. The first, commandment, the first four commandments had to do with our, the duty toward God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not take my name in vain and remember my day to keep it holy. Then, starting with the fifth commandment through the tenth, you have our responsibility to our fellow men. That's the second table of the law. And the first, the, your closest neighbors are honor your father and mother. See? And don't steal from your neighbor. Don't commit adultery with your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house and wife. So you have the two tables of the law. Well, they're here. They're here in abbreviated form. Because, listen, it says here, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. Thou shalt not steal. The sixth commandment. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So you see, in this vision of the flying scroll, he is reminded of both tables of the law, but only the third commandment and the sixth commandment are mentioned as examples of duty toward God and duty toward fellow men. And uh, just in, in case... Uh, we have any doubt about whether the swearing falsely uh, has reference to the Lord. Uh, in verse 4, it says, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And so you, you can be reassured that that has reference to the first table of the law. So that's what you have. The you remember the summary of the law that Jesus gave? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summarizes also the two tables of the law with one sentence for each. And that's something of what we have here. The flying scroll is the law. Um, the law, when it was proclaimed as the people of Israel came into the promised land back under Joshua, uh, was read with its promises, its blessings, and its curses. Remember Mount Ebal and Gerizim? And uh, uh, this, from one mount, it would say, those who keep the law will be blessed with prosperity and long life and good, uh, good circumstances, and, pros and they will be prospered. And then from the other mountain, they said, but those who disobey the law and certain consequences would result. Blessings and cursing. Well, here you have it also, uh, the reminder that those who violate God's law will suffer the consequences. They will be banished. 
they literally will be purged out as covenant breakers because it's getting down in, in uh, revelational history, biblical history, to the remnant now. It's not the many nations under Abraham or the one nation under, under uh, Moses or the one tribe follow from, from David, the tribe of Judah from David to the captivity. Now just a remnant, just a, a small proportion. And so responsibility to the law becomes very, very important for the preservation of God's covenant community to assure the fulfilling promises of redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, God's word here is sort of personified in verse 4. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, that is, this law of mine, this word of mine, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. So, you see, there's, it's not a matter of just being faithful in public, wearing a mask of goodness before men, and then when you shut the door, sin in fancied secret in your own chambers. No, the law penetrates right into the chambers. It's Remember, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. It's the Spirit of God, and He sees everything. So we can't draw the curtains tight and then sin within the household. The law is personified as entering the very household, and uh, its results are there. Um, in summary, then, this vision of the flying scroll reminds the people in Zechariah's day that there really is no excuse for not being obedient to the Lord because they know what is right, what is expected of them in relationship to God and their fellow men. Because it's a flying scroll, it's like a, a flying billboard. <laughs> You know, a, a scroll, you know, is the rolled up uh, papyrus that's, that, that the scriptures were always written on in the ancient day. But this scroll is so big that no one can miss it. It's like a Goodyear blimp with God's law written on the side in flashing lights, you see. So there's no excuse. It's plain as a billboard in the sky. Reminds me of uh, a statement from Samuel Clemens, or Mark Twain, I guess is his uh, literary name, pseudonym. He said, uh, the parts of the Bible that I don't understand don't bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. <laughs> See? No excuse. We know what God's expectations are. Okay. A whole vision in ten minutes. Did you ever expect it to happen? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes the pressures of time limits uh, uh, work. But I hope you understand. We, I know a few of you were impatient and were kindly uh, reminded me of that the first uh, full day and into the second day. And they said, hey, we came here to look at Zechariah. <laughs> but uh, I hope you see now we had to lay that historical uh, setting so that we could understand what's being said. And really, every one of these visions um, makes much more interpretive uh, sense because we know something of the context. And now if I keep ad-living, we won't have time for the last two. So here we go. The woman in a basket. Vision number seven. Then the angel who was speaking to me came, came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is 
appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. It's like saying her name is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, To the country of Babylonia, to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Now, we've been looking at Zechariah for three and a half days, or seven hours of lecture. You know the setting. You know how we've understood some of these symbolisms. Now you interpret this for me, will you please? Give me some, uh, some hints, and don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Now, what do you think this measuring basket represents? These are, this is all visions, therefore we have to see what the symbols mean. What is this measuring basket? It's, to help you, the word is ephah. What is this ephah? Uh, a little louder, please. <laughs> Pardon? I don't know. You don't know. Well, there's an honest man, see. And uh, like Zechariah, when he says, "I don't know what is this," you, if you, anything, I know some. Yes. It's a measuring. Okay, that's already a hint. An ephah is a measuring, and that's why it's translated measuring basket. An ephah was something like a five-gallon pail. Actually, it was the equivalent of, of four gallons and, I better look at my notes, six and three-fourths pints. So it's a pint and a quarter less than, a, than five gallons. It's like a bushel basket, and it was used to measure out grain. And when you went to the uh, granary and you needed wheat to grind and make bread, you said, I'll take an F on a half, please. Huh? Uh, um, there, there, there are several measuring things. A homer was a little bigger measure. Remember, uh, Hosea had to get a homer of barley and a half homer of barley as part of his payment to redeem his wife. Okay, so it's a measuring uh, uh, basket. Now, it so happens that the ephah often stood for the prophets as a representative of injustice. Why? Well, because... The, the dishonest entrepreneur would get himself an undersized ephah. He would get himself made up with maybe a thick bottom. So instead of four gallons plus six and three-quarter pints, it would only hold four. And when people would come to buy, he would charge them for a full ephah, and they would actually get less. So it was a symbol of injustice in the land. 
Amos rails against them. Amos 8, verse 4 to 6. I think we better look at that. Amos 8, verses 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell green and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? What they're saying is, when can we get these religious duties over with so we can go back and make money? See, Skimping the measure. Skimping the measure. The word measure is ephah. Any of you have a King James? I don't quite recall, but it says something like making the ephah small or something like that. Skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Weren't even satisfied with a, uh, with a, with a small size ephah, a dishonest size ephah. They had to throw a little dirt in there with it. See, see. All right, that was a sign then of, of injustice. So what this uh, vision tells us about is this woman represents injustice in the land. People looking out for themselves and not for any others in the covenant community. So that's a start. Uh, and of course I've given it away. The woman then is the personification of evil. Not because she's a woman, because these other two women are not evil. But uh, of course uh, uh, immorality was often associated with, uh, with harlotry and that, that close association makes it, uh, makes it understandable that that uh, this figure could be used to represent uh, wickedness. And the lead cover, well, lead is heavy, isn't it? And uh, in, in some visionary fashion, uh, this vision assures the fact that this wickedness will be carried away. And so it's, it's restricted to the ephah, the measuring thing, and packed in there with a lead cover on it, so um, the, it's uh, it's radiology. <laughs> you know, lead is the protection for uh, for for the uh, uh, these unseen damaging rays that we get, X-rays and the like. Uh, it's in other words, it's a cover-up. <laughs> it, it, so sin is undercover. <laughs> as it often is, isn't it? Sin is undercover. But this woman is carried off to Babylon. Now, what do you think that has reference to? Yes? Well, anchored there. Yeah, because it's the, the final words, she will be set there in its place. Well, it's as though uh, the Lord in through this vision is saying, okay, it's been a wicked nation that's had to be disciplined, but now they, they've gone through their penitence, their penance uh, back there in Babylon, and now it's, it's anchored there, and it's as though it's removed now the wings of these, uh, these other... Uh, women figures have carried it away and it's, it's solidly established there. It will be set there in its place 
so that now in Judea we can be the kind of covenant community we ought to be. So the influence of, of the, pagan, the pagan environment of Babylon is no longer going to be infecting the covenant community. Okay? All right. Well, that was nine minutes for a whole vision. <laughs> Which brings us now to chapter six. There are some interesting comparisons between the eighth vision and the first. As a matter of fact, most commentators see this in chiastic order, and that means something to you uh, seminary graduates and to Jim here, a chiastic order, and I'm not going to go into detail in that technical phase, except to say that uh, in a chiastic word order, uh, order or arrangement, what appears early on reappears later, and there's a, there's a kind of... Uh, uh, a, B equals B, A, you know, relationship. So here in the eighth vision, eighth and last vision, we have symbols that are very similar to those to which we were introduced in the first vision. That's one of the reasons why we don't have to spend quite as much time on these now, because all the other understandings help us to uh, interpret these. So let's look at the scripture here. First verses one through eight. I looked up again. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. That's kind of a spotted gray. All of them powerful. You remember in that first vision you had horsemen, the red horse, uh, in the lead, and then red and black and white horses behind. There were only three, though, that time. And we said that's something of an interpretive problem because the horses usually, at least the colors, you often represent directions, and there are really four general directions, and there were only three there, and I tried to explain uh, why that did make sense there. But now we have four, and they're powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses toward the west. The one with the dappled horses toward the south. Three again. Three again. Where's that fourth direction? There were four in an earlier verse. Well, but let's go on. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. All right, horses. Uh, we describe what horses indicated often in the Bible, military power, strength, and messages from afar because the horse was the only means of, the fastest means of getting news from one place to another. Here we have them again, but this time we not only have horses like the first vision, but we have horses and chariots. There were no chariots in the first visions. 
And uh, chariots um, have wheels, and they represent a, a little more advanced level of warfare and message bringing because they not only bring one horse rider, but they can bring several other messengers along with it. So you can have a delegation, and you can have a committee, and you can have a more council. So you see, it, it raises the same kind of implication to a little higher and broader and more complete level. But interestingly, these four chariots came out from between two mountains made of bronze. Now we have, remember this is a vision, and we have to ask ourselves now, why did the Lord bring before the site, before Zechariah's vision, two big mountains made out of bronze? Well, it so happens that the pillars on either side of the entrance to Solomon's temple were large columns of bronze. This was, the, this was part of the design. And these bronze pillars stood as the, the, the sentries uh, guarding the entrance of God's temple. Now, in typical fashion of the vision, these bronze pillars are seen oversized like huge mountains. And that is typical of the visions we had before. I didn't make a big thing of it, except to say that the flying scroll was, uh, you know, 30 feet by 15 feet. Why, that's about the size of this room. Whereas usually the law was written on uh, papyrus that was rolled up and put in the, in the archives or on the shelf. So you have this oversized scroll flying in the sky with the ephah the ephah is uh, about a five gallon pail but it's big enough to stuff a woman in it a whole human being which means that he sees an oversized ephah you know so everything is, is is on the grand scale so here in this vision he sees the the potential uh, pillars that will be in guarding the entrance of the new of the rebuilt temple, but he sees them in oversize as great big mountains. Now we can understand why it says uh, that these chariots were going out. Verse five: These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. You see, the temple we saw it said often enough represents the presence of God in the midst of his people. And his word goes out from the temple and it is a word that is applicable to the whole world. And so these chariots he sees coming out from between the mountains, the pillars of the temple, uh, is really the word of the Lord as proclaimed in the temple from God's presence uh, out into the whole world. And the chariots, therefore, with the horses are God's messengers. God's warrior messengers now. In vision one, just messengers. Now with chariots, they are God's warrior messengers. And in verse 5, we read, these are the four spirits of heaven. Now, uh, notice it says spirits with a small s. And in, the verse, in chapter 4, we saw not by might nor by power, but by my spirit with a capital S. Why the distinction? Well, simply because the word here is not ruah. 
It's not the same word used by the Spirit of the Lord that, that hovered over the, the, uh, un, the, the, the formless void of, of, of the creation story. It's not the same Spirit of the Lord that made the dry bones in Ezekiel's valley come to life. But no, this is simply a spirit in the sense of message or wind or message. It, the word is ruhot. It's just a little variation. So it's something like wind, but it's not uh, the, the, uh, the Spirit of God, but these are the messengers who carry the message from God. Now in uh, verse 6 we read, the one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the white horses toward the west, the dappled horses toward the south. Uh, you know uh, by now, you're all aware of the fact that the Bible was really in God's providence, pieced together from ancient sources. And we do have uh, remarkably uh, well-preserved uh, uh, manuscripts of the ancient writings. But there's still this special science um, which tries to determine what the actual readings are. And uh, there is no piece of literature in the world that has as much guarantee of its correctness on the basis of original sources than the Bible. It's remarkable how uh, we read, uh, for instance, Plato's, uh, uh, Plato's philosophical discourses, and we do very little uh, challenging of whether you think that was really what Plato said, he puts such and such in the mouth of Socrates. You really think that's really what he said, or has it been, has it been uh, changed over the years? There's very little of that. And yet, we don't have nearly the guarantee of the exactness of, uh, of Plato's writings that we have of the exactness of the Bible. Uh, Dr. William Hendrickson was my professor of New Testament at seminary, and he said if you, if you put all the questions of words or phrases or even uh, uh, commas, you know, the technical factors, all to group them all together from all the scripture, it wouldn't amount to more than a page and a half of the whole Bible. And of that page and a half, there's very little uh, a difference of opinion. It's just that there's one or two alternative possibilities in the process. So God has marvelous, marvelously preserved it. But, or, uh, but conservative scholarship uh, suggests, at least many of the conservative sources of uh, Zechariah, interpreters of Zechariah, uh, contend that one little phrase was lost in the process of reproducing, which all had to be hand done, of course, until the printing press was discovered, Gutenberg's press, uh, one little phrase was lost, namely, red horses toward the east. Because in this case, we have all four in verse 2, and one would expect that there would be a reference to all four subsequently when they are identified with the, the four directions. So, uh, sort of a question, but there's a possibility that a small phrase was lost in, in reproduction uh, which would account for the absence of red horses in uh, verse 6. I don't think there's any interpretive problem involved 
because the, the concentration is on the black. The sinister horse, black, the, which was identified with evil. And that's from the North Country. Uh, the one with the black horses is going toward the North Country. And uh, a little later, in verse 8, we read, Look, those going toward the North Country have given my spirit rest in the land of the North. So you see, uh, the, the assurance that a threat from the North it will no longer hinder the progress of the temple construction uh, is guaranteed here. All directions are recognized, but after all, it was from the north, uh, the northeast, but of course the armies always had to go west and then straight south into Palestine because it was very difficult to come across that, uh, that desert uh, area uh, between, within the Fertile Crescent. So the, with the, if the north is at rest, then the threat has receded and then the time has come for the temple to be rebuilt so that the word of the Lord through his messengers can pass through the columns of the temple and go throughout the whole length of the, of the entire world. So that's the essence of this vision number eight. Which brings us now to the climax of this section of Zechariah. You know, there's a clear distinction between chapters 1 to 6 and the subsequent chapters of, of Zechariah. And that's why we're concentrating on these, because these are the eight visions, and from then on, of course, the prophet uh, draws conclusions and preaches messages based on what God has revealed to him in, in and through the visions of the first six chapters. So let's look now. We've got 25 minutes. Uh, at verses 9 to 15 of Zechariah chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will clothe with majesty, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Now, isn't this interesting? 
all of these visions concentrating on the on the assurance of the rebuilding of a temple and ultimately a city and then when they're all finished when all visions are finished we are told that somebody else is going to build the temple isn't that rather strange uh, a crown is made out of gold and silver and placed on the head of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and, uh, and tell him, what, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Repeated twice. That's a characteristic of Hebrew if something is extremely important. You know, Hebrew is a very restricted language. There are only about, in biblical Hebrew that is, about 400 root words. When seminary students tell me, oh boy, I'm having trouble with Hebrew, I say, hey, only has 400 basic words. English has about 110,000. I mean, it must be a breeze. But they know that out of these 400 basic words, they have prefixes and suffixes and genders and cases and tenses and it gets to be very very elaborate but because it is a, a language that didn't have an enormous vocabulary there's no Webster's dictionary in biblical Hebrew no it's probably a size of Pamir well about that wide and that includes much lengthier uh, explanations of the various words not nothing like Webster's if if they follow the Webster method we have a rather thin little dictionary like this. And of course, some students carry around a little thin one uh, because uh, they have a more ready reference. And so the Hebrew had to use other literary techniques to say what was really important. Now, in English, we simply use more adjectives, right? Enormous, uh, elaborate, uh, you know, we can use all sorts of, uh, you can use small, little, bigger, larger, you know but they simply repeated it. And if it was repeated, that's what you better concentrate on as very important. So here, um, what we have is Joshua is going to represent someone who is the branch, and you already know who that is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. Well, you know that this is a messianic prophecy, isn't it? You see, what this concluding section of Zechariah 6 tells us is that the climax of God's purposes in history will not be a building, but a person. Will not be a structure, important as they are, center of our worship life. They're important. Churches are important today. But the, the real ultimate uh, temple builder who will himself be the temple <laughs> for he himself said destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. <laughs> See the similarity of biblical terminology. And he will build the temple of the Holy Spirit which is you and me as building blocks of that temple. So the 
ultimate climax of God's purposes is not to be identified with some holy building. Ultimately. Important as though the temple and the tabernacle before it, important as though that role was until Jesus came and then the veil in the temple could be ripped. And it didn't matter that the Romans came and devastated it because they didn't end anything except the symbol of him who was the real thing. And that's what this passage is telling us. Uh, these gentlemen mentioned here, uh, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, uh, and a little later, uh, one more is added, Hen, the son of Zephaniah. They were recent arrivals from Babylon. Um, the, we've already said that there were several deportations and there were several returning groups. The last of them was under Ezra. And then apparently there was still dialogue between the, uh, the exiles and, the, and Babylon, the headquarters. And we said, too, that um, they were promised some government assistance, and they were. And as a matter of fact, Darius said, told the, uh, the peoples around the Jews that they had to help uh, pay for the structure in the Lord's providence. So you keep getting these messengers. And uh, I imagine that these messengers brought some of the government grants in the form of gold and silver. It may have been their personal uh, wealth, but that's not very likely because they were coming from Babylon where not very many Jews were that terribly successful. In any, any event, uh, from part of this gold and silver that they had recently brought, um, a crown was to be set on the high priest's head. Now, this is a word of the Lord that came to him. So it's, uh, I, I take this as actual uh, history. This is not a vision anymore. The eighth vision is all over. And so they went to the trouble to smelting down this gold and silver and making this elaborate crown. As a matter of fact, in the original, the word is in the plural. And uh, some have concluded that, uh, therefore, there should be two crowns, one for Zerubbabel and one for Joshua, and that's plural. And then there are two offices, you see. Uh, actually, again, Hebrew often uses the plural uh, just to indicate excellence, something that's very good. And I think that's the way we are to take this. And it's to be placed on, on Joshua's head, who, of course, is a symbol of the Joshua to come. Isn't that interesting um, that the word Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua? Oh, now they say Yeshua, but only the vowel has changed, and vowels are very changeable. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there are no vowels in the original, just consonants. And the Masoretes in the 19th century added the Masoretic vowels, and now Jew, the Hebrew has A, E, I, O, and U also, or not even sure if they have all, all, the, uh, all those vowels. But Joshua and Yeshua is really, that's the Jewish way of saying Jesus. So Joshua the high priest here, we saw that already in chapter 3, of course, um, is an anticipation, a shadow of the Joshua to come, because Jesus, you know, means Savior. 
So Joshua is the anticipation of the Savior, and the crown is placed on his head, and then the statement is made, here is the man, which we should understand then is, he represents the man who is the branch. Now the branch, of course, is the branch of Jesse, the branch of David. Uh, I want to read, I didn't do this the last time we looked at the word branch, but in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, we read, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. And that's repeated again in, verse, uh, in Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Now remember, Jeremiah was the last of the pre-exilic prophets who dwelt in Judea, in Judah, in Jerusalem. And Zechariah and Haggai are the first prophets to dwell there after the exile. And a few of the prophets who were in exile or went into exile uh, didn't return, like Ezekiel and Daniel. So here we have a prophet just after the return reminding them of the prophecy of Jeremiah uh, that a branch, a righteous branch, will come forth. Which uh, leads me to uh, uh, draw some final conclusions from this, from this uh, concluding section. Incidentally, you notice that the first six verses of chapter 1, I spent a lot of time there, uh, and as the introduction to the, to the visions, and now this is somewhat of the conclusion after the visions are over. But it says, he will rule on his throne in verse 13, and there will be harmony between the two. Between what two? The priestly and the kingly office. Um, Joshua as priest wearing the crown of a king. It's interesting that the idea of priesthood is universal, isn't it? You know, everywhere you go, there are priests. Why? I mean, there are Hindu priests and Buddhist priests and Shinto priests and Anglican priests and Roman Catholic priests. And uh, you go into the uh, primitive religions and there are priests, 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 craft everywhere. Why? Because there's a basic human craving that requires a go-between between awesome divinity and sinful humanity. It seems, it seems there's something about priesthood that fulfills the craving of the human breast. And as a matter of fact, God provided priests all through that Old Testament. Go-betweens, mediators, representatives. The people were afraid to approach God, so they went to Moses and later to the, other, to the priests. They brought their sacrifices to the priests and the priest interceded for them. The whole Old Testament is representational. The priest represented the people um, in, in all the religious ceremony. A priest is, uh, fulfills that need for bridging the gulf between sinful humanity that feels its need and a, and a powerful deity everywhere. But Christianity 
provides the only true priest. All the conditions for which human beings need a priest are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And that's why Christianity shouldn't have any priests anymore. The era of the priesthood is over, at least the priesthood in the sense of the mediator. I still, you know, we, we still recognize that the diaconal office, which fulfills a priestly role, receiving the offerings of God's people, presenting them to the Lord, ministering to the uh, needy on behalf, in compassion, in the name of the compassionate Savior, but no priest as an ordained position or person. The Old Testament priesthood simply provided that temporary symbol till Jesus came to be our only high priest, as our own creeds repeatedly say it. And Jesus fulfills this role because, well, he is a man among men. Yes, I know, he's God's divine son, but he is also fully human. And a priest had to be from among his brethren in order to represent them. But furthermore, a priest had to be one who represented holiness, who represented religious devotion. And of course, our Lord Jesus is the perfect holy one as well. And the priest had to be one who had entrance into the very presence of God. Now when you think about it, the elaborate ceremony uh, surrounding the preparation of the high priest to go just one time each calendar year into the Holy of Holies demonstrates how awesome is the presence of God and how reluctant we should be to barge into that presence. But Jesus is the perfect priest because we have access to the right hand of the heavenly majesty itself. You see? And that's why the temple was torn in two to make ready access to all into the very presence of God because we are worthy and unafraid now? No, but because in Jesus we are worthy and unafraid. He is the perfect priest. But now, here in this passage it says that the two, there will be, he will be a priest on his throne. Well, a throne is a kingly position, isn't it? So Christ is not only priest, he is also king. We sing, Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. The whole creation is his. His kingdom rules over all. And, of course, that's why we speak of um, the kingdom of our God, because it means God's divine rule that has been assured through Christ. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord means master, owner, uh, one whom, whose, whose uh, sovereign regional character we, re we, we acknowledge. And now our Jesus, therefore, is the one priest king who intercedes and rules for the best welfare of his subjects. Earthly kings try to aggrandize themselves. We shouldn't be surprised at a um, Hussein 
in Iraq, typical of anyone who gains ascendancy, looking out for himself and let a hundred thousand of his uh, common troops be massacred on the front lines so long as he survives, so long as his prestige. Jesus is not a king that way. Nor is he a priest. You know, priestcraft it, it has been a curse often. Uh, the wealthiest people in primitive society are the, are the um, medicine men who are priests and uh, pseudo-doctors in one. And they exploit their people, you know. And that's the way priests have often been in, in the history of the church, exploiting uh, the church. But Jesus is a priest king who exists on behalf of his people, not to exploit them, but to save them. Not to enslave them, but to free them. Thousands died for Napoleon. Napoleon didn't die for anybody. Millions died for Hitler, and millions more died to resist Hitler. But Hitler didn't die for anybody. But Jesus is the one priest-king who died for his subjects. And then ruled on behalf of his subjects, seeking their welfare. And it's he, it's he who is the eternal temple builder. Mm -hmm. That's where this concludes, doesn't it? He will be the priest on his throne and he, verse 15, will build the temple of the Lord. With what? Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So Joshua the high priest uh, was about to be installed if the temple ever got finished. Uh, they finished it finally around 515, 510. And yet this text says that the temple isn't finished and it has, has to still be built. Which reminds us again that the temple that uh, Zechariah was building, well, encouraging the people to build, and Zerubbabel and Joshua providing the leadership was only temporary, symbolic. They must never think that it was an end in itself. Just one little step toward the coming of him who would be the eternal temple builder because he builds his temple throughout the ages and people from afar people in Southern California and in all nations where the gospel has been proclaimed are now part of that temple building process. Oh, he is the great temple builder, the eternal temple builder, but we assist him. We're his helpers because Zerubbabel and Joshua didn't build that temple with their own hands either. They had assistance and the Lord in providence asks us to build with him. He said, destroy this temple in three days. I will, be I will rebuild it. But we know that Jesus and his, the body of Christ, is the true temple that endures throughout eternity. And he reminds us, doesn't he, that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit of Christ builds within us. He takes us and he redeems us and he fashions us into the proper shape and character so that we can fit where we belong into that great structure called the temple of God's kingdom. Which means that our job 
is not finished either, any more than their job was in Zechariah's day. We are his servants. We are his co-laborers. And in the final analysis, the only thing in this life worth wasting our time on is the building of God's kingdom because everything else isn't going to last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In other words, only temple building is the real profession, skill in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus builds on through the ages and one day his temple will be complete and this prophecy will be entirely uh, fulfilled. Someday the Lord's going to slip the last brick into place. And then those who try to destroy that temple and to disrupt that building will finally be put away. And the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ will endure forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises given to the people, the faithful exiles of old who returned to do your work then, imperfectly, and yet you were among them. And their work was successful because Jesus has come and that the real eternal temple builder has been revealed and we await that day when Jesus alone will sit on the one throne of the universe, the eternal priest-king who perfectly has fulfilled all prophetic word. In his great name we pray. Amen. I'd like to say that you've been a marvelous 